Bibles, please turn to the letter of Titus. It's just after First and Second Timothy. The pastoral letters were written out of a godly passion for the truth in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul had revealed to Timothy that in the last days before Jesus returns, the days they lived in, the days we live in, the truth of the gospel would be compromised in the church by those who love themselves and their own preferences and desires more than they love the truth that comes to us from God and has been revealed to us by Jesus Christ in the gospel. Timothy had to fight against that in Ephesus with the preaching of the word, and a man named Titus will have to fight it in Crete in this last pastoral epistle, also by the preaching of the word. Crete is an island that sits in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. It used to link Greece to what was then known as Asia Minor, which today is Turkey. It's likely that Titus was stationed in what was Crete's provincial capital city of Gortine. That's how you say it, I think. And his task was an apostolic, as an apostolic delegate of Paul's, was to establish a body of elders in the churches of every one of the 20 or so cities on the island at that time. Throughout the pastoral epistles, we looked at First and Second Timothy, we've seen the word sound in front of doctrine throughout First and Second Timothy, referring to what is healthy, what is correct to teach. We're going to hear that word four more times in the letter to Titus. The rise of false teaching is the primary problem Paul faces in those first churches. So we should have no trouble today believing that this is even more of an issue in the church now, since we are even further removed from the personal influence of the apostles. The goal of the preacher is to lead God's people into the knowledge of the truth. The truth that, as Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, is always in accord with godliness, which we know is Jesus Christ himself. Notice that for the problems that were unique to Crete, the solution is the exact same. Preach the word. That which is truth in the church depends on its relation to Jesus Christ and what he has made known in the gospel. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul called the church the household of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, precisely because the church's primary task is to proclaim Jesus Christ, who is himself the truth, and as such is the revelation of the mystery of godliness. And houses, we find in Titus, need to be in order. That's the purpose of Paul's letter to Titus in Crete. The church must be put into order so that the truth might be clearly proclaimed enough to protect us from the false doctrine that hurts our faith and knowledge and hope. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son and for your people that his word has made. And so, Father, for your name, for your glory, for your people, would you please consume me by your spirit and make me preach your word correctly. I ask and pray this for the sake of everyone who would hear that we might believe. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first four verses of Titus. Paul, 
a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is a powerful greeting. We tend to gloss over these, which is understanding but or understandable, but this one is just loaded. In 2 Corinthians 7, when Paul spoke at length about his afflictions as he arrived in Macedonia, he mentioned that the God who comforts the downcast had done so for Paul and his companions by the coming of Titus to them. His words and report to them strengthened Paul, strengthened his team, renewed them for ministry. So Titus was a crucial companion all through Paul's missionary life, uh, the ministry of the gospel that had started in the book of Acts. He had Paul had started a ministry in Crete, but had to leave at some point. And so he had left Titus there to finish that ministry. This letter was written sometime uh, before 2 Timothy, probably around the same time he wrote 1 Timothy in the early 60s AD. There are some hints here, some hints in history that Crete was an extremely difficult place for the ministry of the gospel. It was a very young church, um, relatively speaking, and Cretans didn't give much hope for improvement. This was a hard work among a hard people, and Paul had assigned Titus to do it because it doesn't matter how messed up people are. Grace is more powerful than sin, and grace is the content of Titus's message. So Paul begins his letter with a reminder that he was God's servant and an apostle sent by Jesus Christ to the nations for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life. God made Paul who he was for three reasons in the letter to Titus. The faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, and the hope that this knowledge gives them. But notice two things about the promise of eternal life that's proclaimed in the gospel in verse 2. First, that promise was made by God, who, by the way, never lies, which means the promise God makes will never be broken. That is why it is the source of the believer's hope. But secondly, this promise was made before the ages began, before God created time and us to live in it, God made a promise. Beloved, what is revealed in the gospel is not a plan that God came up with after humanity fell in the garden. It's not a band-aid for something he didn't see or couldn't stop from coming. It was the reason for which and with which he created the world and time itself. That's why everything exists. This promise, it's the driving force of all human history. The promise was made before the world was created. And in verse 3, this promise was manifested in history at the time God ordained through the preaching of the apostles. So put that all together. Preaching the word of God is the means by which God builds up the faith of his chosen people and fills them with the knowledge of the truth that accords with Jesus Christ 
so that their hope in his promise of eternal life would increase and not fail. That is what Paul had been entrusted with. That is what he's passing on to Titus, his true child in a common faith. So the very personal letter again for his ministry in Crete. It's just the same ministry replicated, duplicated over and over again, no matter where it goes. It's like, ideally, the church is like McDonald's. Okay? You go to a McDonald's in Holbrook, Arizona, the cheeseburger tastes exactly like it tastes right down here in Moundsville. Ideally, I know it's a very bad metaphor, that's what the church is like. No matter where you go, you get the same thing. Tastes the same, looks the same, smells the same, but we don't want to talk about that. But it's the same everywhere you go. The content of the apostles' preaching, which has become our preaching, was the manifestation of the promise God made before time began. God granted in time, then, when we read something like that, that his word could only be fully proclaimed after Christ had fully accomplished his work, had fully fulfilled the promise. And this is God's command for the preaching of all who endeavor to preach his word. We proclaim one faith, one way of salvation, one promise, one means of hope for the entire world. We preach a promise from Ephesus to Crete, from Moundsville to London, Kampala to Beyongyang, it doesn't matter. All that God means to provide for his people in their spiritual sojourn through this world is meant to come from the preaching of his word. That's why preaching has to have Christ as he has revealed himself to be our savior in the gospel as its source, its means, and its goal. God has entrusted his church with the same thing he entrusted to his apostles at its very inception. Preaching that doesn't do that that doesn't focus on Christ as he's revealed himself in God's promise, is at best a motivational speech and at worst a false doctrine of demons. Pick it up in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He's been talking about elders now for three letters. Paul is writing to Titus about the cosmic implications of the gospel in the preaching of the word, about the very source of the believer's faith, hope, and knowledge. And in verse 5, we find the root of the issue that is threatening that. What has occasioned this letter is the leadership or lack thereof at the church or the churches in Crete. Excuse me. So, beloved, I want to say something that I don't, mean to be offensive. That's not even the point of it. This is not a statement. What I'm about to say is not a statement about our deacons. It's a statement about church order that I would make anywhere, no matter what church I was in. So it's not a personally motivated thing. The church can survive with a weak or even an absent diaconate or deacon board. It can survive. It's it's not indispensable. The the ministry of the deacons is never put forth in the Bible, ever, as indispensable to the church, as the source of its teaching, or as the source of its direction, as the means of protecting the body, ever. That's not what a deacon, a deacon board does, nor is it 
Does it have to be present for the church to have order? All of that falls exclusively at the feet of the elders. Again, a group of qualified men who shepherd the flock of God after his own heart as overseers, protectors, examples, and the authoritative proclaimers of his word. And according to Paul, there could be anything and everything going on in a church, but if there's not a plural eldership present, a church is out of order, period. Okay, that's what we see. A a plural eldership is necessary for the church to even have order. Now, it's nobody's fault here. Please understand that. But Baptist churches tend to get it backwards. We see the deacons as kind of a blanket administrative or leadership board for the whole church. Everything flows through them. Right? With their, when their biblical purpose is to assist the pastors, the elders, by seeing to the physical needs of the body so that the pastors can mainly prioritize the spiritual needs of the body. All believers, ideally, could do what deacons do or should be able to. The qualifications of deacons don't require a person to be able to do the one thing that elders have to do, which is what makes them elders teach the word, preach the word correctly, right? Deacons are those who are exemplary in their willingness and ability to meet physical needs. Hopefully a church ideally would be full of deacons, but beloved, a church is out of order when it's missing elders. We see that right here in front of us. That is never said. That statement is never made of the deacons. It doesn't even relate to church order. Notice the plural nature of the predicate here. Appoint elders in every town. That means plural elders in every town. In every branch of the church on the Isle of Crete, there was to be a group of qualified elders in each one. And this responsibility falls to Titus, who we know from verses 1 through 4, must have had the responsibility of being the preaching elder in Crete. Titus must appoint the elders in these towns. That recalls something implied in 1 Timothy 3.2, 2 Timothy 2.2, that the preaching elder has the role of first among equals within an eldership. Notice that deacons are not selected this way. Titus is called to appoint the elders. When the deacon task is first brought up in Scripture, what become the model for it, the elders, the apostles, tell the congregation to select from among themselves people that they, that they think meet these qualifications, and the elders would then appoint those men, presumably if they were qualified, to that duty. But the suggestions, the names, came from within the congregation. Titus is called by himself to appoint these elders. The preaching elder is not the sole leader or dictator of the church. It's not what that means. Or is he that of the elders? He simply has a role of leadership and influence even among the elders, not because he is the best of them, but because he has the primary responsibility of preaching the word, of dividing it rightly, of having time to study and labor over it. So being the leader among the leaders falls to him. His leadership is related to the primacy of the word not his personality or his talents. All the elders are pastors and all the elders are equal. But, as we see in the example of the twelve, right, the disciples, Jesus sets up a pattern there. There are twelve. They're all disciples. They're all equal. But then 
you see throughout the Gospels that Peter, James, and John are obviously set apart for some different reasons or to some degree. And even among the three of them, Peter will eventually become the leader. He's often the spokesman. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem for a time. And so Paul gives Titus, carrying on this model, the responsibility of identifying and installing the elders in the churches on Crete, as well as the description of what kind of men they must be. So we pick it up in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He says that twice in Crete. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, we took three or four weeks in our study on 1 Timothy going through eldership and the qualifications, so we don't need to rehash every detail of that. But we do, or we're going to walk through these just briefly here to refresh our minds about the kind of men God would have pastor his people. First and foremost, on the lists, on all the lists, he must be above Reproach. In other words, it doesn't mean he's sinless, then nobody would qualify, right? There is no open accusation that can be currently brought against him. This relates to his observable behavior, right? What, what can you see? Is he above reproach in what you can see? There's no open accusation that can currently be brought against him, right? There's nothing hanging over him. He must be the husband of one wife. Remember, he's a one-woman man that isn't flirtatious or compromised when it comes to his marriage, nor would he act in a way that makes others think he is, that he wouldn't be above reproach. Everything relates back to that, but he's faithful to his wife. His children are believers or are faithful in some translations, as the Greek word for believers here is used elsewhere, faithful, trustworthy. Of the 67 times This word in Greek is used in the New Testament. It's almost always faithful or trustworthy. In other words, it's not that the elder has to have the ability to make his children believers. We wouldn't believe anyone has the power to do that but the Holy Spirit. Remember how Paul started the letter. Christians are called God's elect in verse 1, meaning that they're chosen by God. So how could an elder then be responsible to make his children believers? Believers, if I could do that, if an elder could do that, you would assume that he can make the whole church believers. But God does all the choosing is what the first part of the letter makes clear. That would make sense. So the requirement here is that the elder's children must be obedient to him. They must be submissive. It's not that they have to be professing Christians. That would make sense when we read in verse 6 that they're not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. That's an explanation of the statement he just made. In other words, his children, and the word does imply it to those of that younger age, are not out of control. At some point, he is no longer responsible for the actions of children who are grown, right? But remember, eldership is all about managing the household of God back in 1 Timothy 3. So that speaks to that overall sense that, He cares for the family with proper leadership. The reason for that, again, is that he must be above reproach. Paul reiterates that in Crete twice, because we'll read next week that Cretans were a pretty 
unruly bunch. You've probably heard that word before, and it's not used positively that somebody's a Cretan. That's a very unflattering way to refer to somebody who's a brute or not a good person. I, I, you don't hear it much anymore. I don't know if it's still used in that way, but that is the, right, the, the connotation of the word. It would not be a compliment if you said somebody was a Cretan. Well, there's a reason for that. It goes back to the kind of people they were on this island. But in verse 7, since again, elders are stewards of God's people, they care for God's people, they don't belong to Him, He stewards them, He has to be above reproach. They can't be people or men with horrible reputations in the community because that will damage their credibility. Elders are meant to care for God's people, and apparently there has to be some level of trust to do that as effectively as God intended in giving the qualification. Reputation is a big deal. I I wondered about that, no kidding, driving to the church this morning because I realized I was the only house that I could see on my street that hadn't shoveled his walk yet. (laughs) The only one. And I, I, I don't know, like, is that a big deal in Glendale? I don't know. I know mowing your grass is, but I just looked around the neighborhood as I'm getting in my car, like, you are the one dork that didn't shovel his walk. So I gotta, I gotta get on that. It just looks silly, but it's probably a little bit more than that. But you understand that, that he must be above reproach. That there's not an open accusation. There, there's nothing that people could point to and say from what they can see, right? That he's evil, out of control, bad reputation. Right, he, he must not be arrogant, Paul says. He can't be full of himself. He can't be a braggart. He must not be quick-tempered. He can't run around punching people in the face that get on his nerves. That would be a bad thing. He can't be a man who has no ability to control his temper when necessary. Everybody has a temper. The issue is how far a person has to be pushed before it gets bad. Right? For the elder, does he have enough control over himself to keep himself in check when Necessary, Or does he fly off the handle all the time in the church? He can't be a drunkard, right? That's specific. Remember, he says he can't be a drunkard. In First Timothy, he said he can't be given to much wine. So he, he can't drink to the point where he becomes drunk. He can't be a drunk. He can't have no control when it comes to this. He's not a rouser, right? It flows right into the next. So he can't be violent either. Those two things tend to go hand in hand. And so neither one of those are tolerable for an elder, nor is he greedy for gain. Unlike the false teachers in Ephesus, he cannot see the ministry of the word as a means to become rich or more common as a means to feed his ego, which is just as dangerous a motivation as the love of money. The gain one gets from having their ego fed, from having power cannot be greedy for any kind of gain. As opposed to being self-serving, he serves others, so he must be hospitable. He has a welcoming spirit, he's approachable, he's willing to open his home when he's able. He's a lover of good, or good men, I believe it says in one of the translations, that he desires those things that accord with Jesus Christ. He's self-controlled, upright, Holy, disciplined. In other words, again, these are issues of his character, beloved. And if you'll notice, there's nothing so far that's unique to being a believer. Or that stands out as radically different from what any Christian is called to. The issue with eldership specifically, really, comes in the next verse, in verse 9. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This would be the word of the promise that God who never lies made before the ages began. That's why it's trustworthy. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. It said is able to teach in First Timothy 3 and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is Paul's main concern given this verse in light of the first four verses. The proper ministry of the word. What an elder must be able to do is hold firm to the word that was taught to us through Christ and his apostles. Paul calls it the deposit in First and Second Timothy. It's trustworthy. It contains everything that we need in Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's breathed out by God himself. And he has to be able to do that for a specific reason. So that in verse 9, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. He must not only be able to teach the word, but know it well enough to perceive what is in error and call it out as such. Again, remember the exhortation to Timothy about preaching back in 2 Timothy 4, 2. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. The majority of the ministry of the word in the church is corrective. Paul reiterates here. It's there to correct error. We default naturally to the wrong kind of thinking. We don't default into the truth. So Paul's theme remains the same throughout all three pastoral letters. The theme of the pattern of sound words, the deposit that's been entrusted to the church for all time. Again, rebuke is as critical in the church as instruction. So the elder has to know the word well enough to recognize error. And error would be anything that deviates from the trustworthy word is taught. Anything that goes against the plain teaching of Scripture. There are always going to be issues where we differ in our view of them or opinion of them, and those kinds of things are fine. That, that's probably even healthy. But there are things in Scripture that just are not up for debate. Among your eldership, you couldn't have... Two or three that believe Jesus was born of a virgin and two, you know, three or four that don't. That, that's, that's not, that's a non-negotiable, right? There are things in scripture that must be, or things that people say or believe that must be rebuked by everybody that sits in the position of eldership. Everything in the church revolves around the ministry of the word. Everything. Right? And the less teachers, James would say, the better. The more teachers you have, the more potential for error you have. But if there are going to be many teachers in a church, there must be a strong and qualified eldership to oversee it so that nothing that will damage our faith or damage our knowledge or damage our hope will be able to slip through the cracks. This is a very important thing that we don't talk about very much. This is in the church the elder's burden. It is his task to ensure the church must put a premium on the ministry of the word, mainly the preaching of the word above all else. I don't say that because I'm the preacher and so it helps validate me. I'm saying it because I genuinely believe that's what the scripture teaches. The church must be put into order so that the truth might be proclaimed clearly enough to protect us from false doctrine that hurts our faith, hurts our knowledge and hurts our hope. That's what false doctrine does, which is why it's so deadly. That's why it's so deadly. 
And beloved, putting God's house in order means appointing elders who will uphold the purity of the teaching of the church. This is God's design for the faith and knowledge and hope of his people. We can only conclude when we read a text like this that these crucial things would be damaged if the house is not put into order. Think about it. Think about Paul's reasoning here. If what he's wanting and what if what he's created to do in the church could be accomplished without elders, it doesn't matter whether you install them or not. It, it, right? Why would it matter that the church is out of order? It matters a great deal whether or not the church, the household of God, is in order because of faith and knowledge and hope. The means by which God keeps his church protected and keeps his church in order is a strong eldership. Because a strong eldership is made strong. What makes them strong? Not their personalities, not their talents. It's their commitment to the word. And so, beloved, we have to decide what we want our church to be about. Want it to be about us or do we want it to be about the truth? Right? We have to decide why it exists. And you might think that's arrogant coming from me, who's relatively new when your church has stood here for so long. Beloved, that's not a statement or an indictment on the past at all. At all. The past is not my responsibility. The past is not my concern. Right? I won't give an account for when I didn't shepherd here. I will give an account for when I did. We are called to redeem our time, the time we live in now, not to pine over the past. If the root of truth in us is not refreshed time and time again with the water of God's word, we will stagnate. We have to be in order. The winds are about to blow. You can feel it. The water is about to rise. Whether or not this house stands doesn't depend on the construction or appearance of our building. It doesn't depend on whether our activities are up and running. It doesn't depend on whether we're able to hold on to our little slivers of power and influence and notoriety. That's what the church becomes for many. A place where they can feel validated and do what they want to do that they can't do in other places. That's not what the church is. That's not what it's for. This isn't your house. This isn't my house. We are God's house. The people of Moundsville Baptist Church are God's house, a pillar and buttress of his truth, not our desires. And if it's not going to be that, if that's not really, every church says that's what they are. But is it in order according to the scripture? If it's not going to be that, if it's not going to be in order, if we're just going to cling to ourselves, then we should change the sign out front and be honest. So the people know what they're getting themselves into. Moundsville Baptist Church, family owned and operated. Say that, if that's what it is. Say that. Right? Beloved, we've been sent into this community to bear witness to the truth. To the truth. That God, the only Lord and creator of heaven and earth, out of his grace and love and mercy, has chosen not to categorically destroy us for our sin and rebellion, but in light of the promise he made before he even created time, has sent his son to live the perfectly obedient life no one is capable of living 
And to then offer up that life as an acceptable sacrifice that is pleasing to God as a substitute for us, as our means of righteousness, and to pour out his blood while absorbing God's wrath against us as our means of forgiveness, that we may be saved. Beloved, if everything we say and do isn't soaked in that message from the soles of our feet to the top of our heads, we should write Ichabod over the door because the glory and the presence of God have departed. We forfeit the right to claim his name if we don't claim his purpose for ourselves. Beloved, this message exists for our faith so that we keep believing. It exists for our knowledge so that what informs our way of thinking is the grace of God in Christ. And it exists for our hope because the message of the promise we proclaim reminds us that the one who made it never lies. And so we must be put into order so that the word of truth is the clearest and most consistent thing about us outside and inside these walls. And the way we faithfully pursue that and put our money where our mouths are, so to speak, is to begin the path to a faithful, plural eldership. Not because it's one way among many, not because it's the way I like the most, that's irrelevant. But because it's God's design for his church, beloved. Again, as I said at the beginning of the study, it's not my vision. That's not what it is. It's God's command. It's there. It must be reckoned with. We need men who don't just desire this office. We need men who are qualified for this office. It is a major shift. It's a major shift. We don't want to do anything, though, that hinders us from being in order because in order is where we're apparently most likely to hear the gospel clearly and faithfully. That's why it matters, right? Because of what you and I need to hear all the time. That's why it matters so much. We need it far too badly, the truth, to not let it be our highest priority. The God who promised us we'd have eternal life through his son, never lies. Beloved, he never is lying to you and I. He's never not telling us the truth. This has been his design and purpose since before the creation of time itself. And he's watched over his word the whole time to bring about his plan. Trust then that God knows best how to take care of his people. That's really what's at issue here. Who is most qualified to determine how God's people are best cared for? He is. Our faith, our knowledge, and our hope depend entirely on whether we hear the word proclaimed to us faithfully and correctly. God creates by his word, and God sustains by his word. His promise has power. It has power to make us endure as sojourners and exiles in this world. And we hear the promise mainly through this kind of preaching, apostolic preaching focused on Christ as he's been revealed as the fulfillment of God's promise. That is why eldership matters. That's why the house has to be in order 
Right? It's, it's how God keeps the truth embedded in our souls. The Word. And the Word is best suited to come through a group of qualified men who shepherd the flock of God after his own heart as protectors and examples and proclaimers of the truth. Again, like I said at the very beginning of our study on eldership, right? We, we, we have it in theory, right? We, we, in other words, I, I don't know that our church is radically out of order, right? And, and we're, we're blaspheming every time we meet. We're, we're not there. It's not that. There's a way to do it better. Right. We, again, we have it in theory. The deacons in our church aren't trying to run the church. They don't try to run me. That's not what's happening under the scenes. We don't have any type of, you know, like mass rebellion or discord in our church. We have issues because we have people. So it's, again, it's, it's not like it's red alert. If we don't do this tomorrow, we're, we're damaged goods. It's not that. Beloved, there's a way for the church to be in order, to run like a machine for the sake of the truth. What we want to do is design ourselves so that we reflect what God has called us to rather than just kind of doing what we've always done or think is right because it works. It might work to keep a house in order, generally speaking, but this house is God's house. There's a purpose for this house that tells us what kind of order makes that run for the sake of the good, right? And so that's what we're after here. We, we want to pursue what God has called us to do, what God has called us to be. We can take our time doing that, but we need to do it. We need to move towards it. Now, as long as the word is able to be proclaimed faithfully, correctly, we're going to be okay. right? In other words, you heard me say at the beginning, my priority for our church is the clarity of the gospel. That's the priority. It's that underneath that, there are ways that that goes better than if you do it another way. We want to do it the best way. The best way. Why? Because our faith, our knowledge, and our hope are affected by it to such a degree that doing it wrong can damage us over the long haul. Beloved, that's what's at issue here. Our faith, our knowledge, and our hope. That's why Paul's a preacher, right? He's not a preacher to to install elders. He's a preacher to proclaim the truth. Truth is. Gets the priority because the truth is what saves. The truth is the proclamation of God's promise. That's what we want. That's what we want to be clear. That's what we want to be protected. Trust the one who made the design. Trust him. It's not me. Don't trust me. Trust him. I need to be trustworthy. You understand that. I don't mean that. Right. What I mean is, beloved, don't look to me. Look to Christ. Only look at me if I'm directing you to him. Trust the one who made the design to take care of you. What would you fear in rejecting it? What would you be afraid of losing in rejecting God's design? Right? Ask yourself those things. Trust the one who watches over his promise and never lies. Beloved, he's our anchor this morning. He's our rock. Whether we install a plural eldership or not, God isn't changing. Go his way. Beloved, don't doubt him. Don't doubt the one who sent his son to be your redemption. Don't doubt him.
We need to doubt ourselves, not Christ. He is faithful. He is faithful. That's why Paul is so passionate about the word of promise. The word that saved them, that saves Crete, that saves Moundsville, that saves you and I. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Father, for the fact that you have chosen to speak and to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we're completely dependent on you for everything. Everything. And so, Father, we look to you for the days ahead of us as as a church, but also as individual people and as families, as Americans, as West Virginians. Lord, we look to you. We trust you for everything. And so, Lord, may our hope and faith and knowledge increase by hearing the truth of your promise over and over and over again as clearly and as faithfully as we can, as you would allow us, as you would ordain for us. Watch over your people as we go. Father, please take care of everyone that's here, everyone that couldn't be with us. Watch over them. Guide their steps, Father. Lead us home. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.